Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a special treat for you. I have Alan Sang and Dan Oblinger, who are both master negotiators. Historically, I've had a bit of an issue about negotiating because I'm terribly rude about it. I always say that negotiating is what happens after you fail to sell. But these two guys are here to prove me wrong. So, Dan, would you mind giving a quick introduction to your journey to get to where you are, about 30 to 90 seconds? It all begins about uh, 40 years ago. I was born on a flat, treeless prairie, and I lived in a home mostly furnished with discarded office furniture. And that brings me to today, where I'm now Alan Zhang's court-appointed custodian and the guardian ad litem to keep him out of trouble. <laughs> In the midst of that, in the middle there, there's some marriage and children and, and becoming a police officer and a police hostage negotiator and, and also a business consultant. But that's not really the important stuff. No, I didn't <laughs> think it was. Alan, so what's it like being maintained by your own custodian? Uh, he gets bossy sometimes. Oh, let me let me say he tries. <laughs> he tries to be bossy, right? But uh, Are you yeah. married? Me? I'm married. I've I'm married for 27 years. Yeah. Can you believe that, Marcus? To each other. Yeah, no, no, not to Dan, Dan. He thinks he thinks I'm his stepbrother, but my parents didn't tell him that we picked him off the street. So. But we have different fathers and also mothers. <laughs> Who was adopted? Dan was picked up. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, Alan, quick intro from you. I was born in Hong Kong in a, in a concrete jungle city of Hong Kong, unlike the, the flat, treeless prairie that uh, Dan is. So we're essentially the yin to the yang, you know. I'm married to a Caucasian. He's married to an Asian. From birth, we were just made uh, to be opposite. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> by day, well, I'm I, a negotiation I, coach, and by night, I'm a negotiation coach. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tell me this, what are the four most common misconceptions about what negotiation is, Dan? Four, gosh, that's like a random number. The first thing is that people think negotiation is about being aggressive and uh, having leverage. That's the first thing. Yeah. (laughs) Stop it, right? Second thing is that it's about being slick and it's based on techniques and tactics and it's gimmicky. The third thing is that negotiation begins when we both say that we're negotiating, and that's bullshit. Negotiation begins way before that. In fact, the first person to realize they're negotiating usually has a lot of leverage. And then the fourth thing is is that that only special, talented people can do it. Only a, a select group of elite negotiators can negotiate, and all the rest of us are just left taking whatever is handed to us. Excellent. So, Alan, if you can build on that, what are the consequences of those beliefs? Well, it, seem, it seems like uh, Dan has left me with uh, just a few to pick from. But The table scraps. The big ones are deception. People think that in negotiation, deception is key. Lying is okay. Another one is that negotiation is bargaining or haggling. Another one that I can think of is just negotiation doesn't have a process. It's just you wing it. Eight fabulous misconceptions. What are the consequences of people approaching negotiation with those misconceptions in their pocket? All roads lead to win-win. Right. All, a lot of those misconceptions lead people to believe that that negotiations are are a win-win proposition. Like you, the only way that you have a successful negotiation is if it's win-win. Alan, 
<laughs> that's my world, right? I mean, he's uh, he's took that's the words right out. Yeah, he took the he stole the thunder. But the, the thing is, the consequence is ultimately compromise. What people hate, they hate and they regret and they have remorse coming out of a negotiation because they had to compromise. And whether you're using deception or aggression or bargaining, ultimately, when you're when you're using techniques like that or walk away or threats or leverage you are actually building bad agreements. If you do that to me, just think about it for yourself, Marcus. If, some, if I use deception on you and you found out, I lied to you. Yep. How much would you like to continue doing business with me? I certainly wouldn't. But what being caught, what lying does, first of all, it means that you have to remember shit. And that's never a good thing. <laughs> yep. Secondly, if you're caught in a lie, the person may forgive you, but they will never forget, which means that every word that ever comes out of your mouth then is suspect. And that puts yeah. you onto the back foot. And to build on that point, I think negotiation and selling require actual courage. They require you to have a spine. And the problem is that people are afraid of conflict. And the best definition I ever heard of selling is getting your fees on your terms and both parties walk away happy and satisfied eventually. It doesn't mean you have to like it in the moment, but at the end, what you end up with is a good outcome. Now, it's something that both sides can live with. And in my mind, that's the definition of a win-win, not the idea that you have to end up with uh, me giving stuff to you, you giving stuff to me. If it's on my terms and my fees and you're happy and satisfied, that's a win for both of us. I don't see a problem with that. Well, what you're describing, Marcus, is the outcome of all the hard work. Yeah. That is actually the only way that we close to me accepting or embracing win-win. Yeah. What it is, is people, when they describe win-win, they're describing the process of win-win, meaning why don't you just compromise and let's have a win-win negotiation here? They're describing yeah. the process of how they're negotiating by both sides compromising and ultimately opposite of what you get, both of them walk away with remorse and regret and uh, discontent. There's a danger in oversimplifying complexity. We want simple pictures. Simple pictures are usually best, but negotiation is a complex process. And when you oversimplify it by, by using it like a, a heuristic, like win-win, that's where I agree with Alan and you, Marcus. In the end, the end product should be a win-win. And since both people get something that they need, hopefully that they want, but it can, it can have a, a satisfactory and long-lasting solution to the problem. But if you use that as your process, what it looks like with people that haven't been coached well or haven't taken the time to appreciate the complexity is I'm going to lay all my cards on the table. I'm going to expect you to lay all your cards on the table. We pick all the best cards to make the best hand between us. And there you go, win-win. And people get taken for a ride. That's where compromise happens. And that's where more sophisticated negotiators love to say, yeah, it's all about win-win. What do you got? What's your budget? <laughs> right? And then, oh, it's so simple. There's only two pieces of math. And then we get a win-win and it's great. And then you come to find out later, wasn't so great. Both of you would agree that words as a negotiator, and I'm learning, I'm a student of uh, communication now because English is my second language. Words have meaning. And I think the word win automatically implies someone is going to lose. So trying to combine those two words, which sounds good in theory and sounds good and makes us feel good, 
is a shortcut, and I think we should get away from it because that it, it com- conflates the idea of two parties or two or more parties mutually getting what it is that they came for and moving their efforts forward, their mission and purpose, not having to make unnecessary compromises. So a, a mutually beneficial agreement is what is true, but I know it's a mouthful and win-win sounds good, but win-win implies a lot of negative things in it. And that's why I get away from it. I agree with both of you on this. So let's move on a little bit. You talk about the language being critically important here. One of the things that I've realized over the years is that unless you are prepared and you've practiced and you've rehearsed, there's a very grave danger that you might just use a word like just or but or some word that conveys the wrong message. And literally one thing, one word out of place can make the difference. So a word like obsolete, when you're talking about, I don't know, research, for example, and you're trying to sell Mm. a research tool, uh, may Mm. suddenly cause somebody Mm. to think, well, you know, I'm interested in research, so I'm not going to buy. And too often people do not think through the consequences of the language that they use. So What's the process that you take people through when you're training and coaching them in order to ensure that they're using pertinent, relevant, appropriate language for the moment that they're in? Dan? You got to start with some knowledge. So Alan and I coach groups together. And so we always start with a, a kind of just a baseline of knowledge, just some best practices. But there's not much need to go into detail because what's much better is then to have them start performing. And so they're, they're, they're trying to, we want it to be super awkward because you're trying to incorporate new skills or new knowledge into your old habits. And so there should be some dissonance there. And it's fun to watch people kind of fight that and struggle with it. When you put them into performance situations, they very quickly see why their old ways weren't what's best. The, the new things we're presenting to them and their old ways are not compatible. And so they're going to have to make some changes in their habitude. And that's, I think, where you'll actually see field performance improve. You're so right, Marcus. One or two words in a cold call, one or two words in a cold email, one or two words in an SMS that you're reaching out to a prospect and you'll turn them off. That's how people work. We make snap judgments. And one little word that threatens our little shire and we're like, you're not for me. And so with negotiators, like especially police crisis negotiators, we understand what a tight rope we walk. And we, we choose our every word counts, especially in the very beginning. And so I think that's what I bring to the table. And that's where Alan will tell you, like the tactical side of it is all about having good habits and listening and word selection. I mean, honestly, it's building a great question. I tend to work with questions more than answers as a coach. And I think that's smart. All the best coaches that have helped me have done that. And it, every word has to be intentional and don't say too many. And you're probably off to a good start right there. Alan, what do you think? This is where there's some disagreement between me and Dan. Tactically, he is like, he's like a 10. So I learned from him. Even as we're coaching groups together and teams together, I love strategic work. That's my background. That's my, that's my base. I, I work strategically and I'm learning more and more tactical things to do at the, at the right time with the right people, et cetera, tone. And that's a, that's a constant 
training and, 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 uh, and refinement for myself. But what I've found out in my, in my discovery working with people is if they genuinely sense that you respect them, when they genuinely sense that my mission and purpose is to deliver benefits to them, Sometimes in my words, I may use words that we all as negotiators try to avoid, which is like, why? Why would you want to do that? Sometimes I even go, well, I'm I'm struggling here. I'm representing my client. We we suck so bad. Why don't you just fire us, right? I'm struggling and and it it, it de-escalates. From my view, it's because I, if I have displayed genuine respect, the other side overlooks faux pas. They overlook words like you used but instead of and. Well, this is what you believe and this is what I believe. And we have taught, we've been to people saying that, yeah, uh, the but creates a conflict. Yes, it can. But if I have seen your world and I've verbalized your world and summarized your world and I go, but I'm struggling here. Can you help me? I may have just I may have flustered and just used the wrong word, but the other side, in a very visceral way, senses that I'm not out there to be a gut to create a conflict. That makes sense. Absolutely, I think you've touched on a couple of really important points here. One of which is that your intent—you project out your intent, and it gets reflected back. As a species, we are highly attuned to danger and threat. And our brain is wired to pick up on that. And if someone is self-serving, then we will pick up on it. And a salesperson or a negotiator who is in it for themselves with the express intent of screwing you over, you're going to dig your heels in, you're going to get defensive, and you're going to end up in needless conflict. And that whole piece about respect, I think it starts with having a strong self-concept a belief that you have the right to be there and that you are never more or less than your prospect or your counterparts equal. And it it starts with that because I, I think the minute you start to put yourself in a position where you're trying to put them under pressure, you create unnecessary adversarial pressure. And if you put the prospect or the counterpart on a pedestal, then you give away your power. So, Dan, I'd like to explore this with you. As a police negotiator, it must have been pretty hairy to find yourself in a situation where lives were at stake. I mean, this was life or death in many cases. How do you manage the pressure of knowing the consequences of one wrong step and stay calm under all that pressure? The first thing is you can't focus on the pressure. You have to focus on all the preparation that you've made. So for police work, we don't have the luxury of maybe knowing our prospect beforehand. We do try to develop that information, but really you can only focus on the process and the best practices and your habits that you've brought to the table. For us, active listening, I mean, word selection, that kind of thing is really important. There's dynamics involved that you have to manage. The important thing though is to recognize that, and this is this is a great thing for sales, business negotiators, but especially crisis negotiators, it's not you, which speaks to your point, Marcus, of being recognizing that you're equal in dignity with your prospect. And for us, our prospect is the suspect or the subject that we're dealing with. To recognize that they will make a decision today, the life or death decision that they will 
that is made is made by them, not us. So the only thing we can do is manage our process, our internal process, and manage our habits and our emotions and our biases as best we can based on our training and our team concept. And then we extend to that suspect or subject this option of life. And we do it in the most persuasive way possible. And at the end of the day, we don't control the outcome. And I think that's a powerful lesson for sales folks because at the end of the day, you can do everything right. You can avoid all those words that Alan and you and I know to try to avoid. And we can be perfect in a sense in respecting our process and our preparation. And the sales prospect can say, no, they might not have liked your tie. They might have just got off the phone with their, their wife or their husband that had a bad day and they just, they're not ready to buy. Corona could have hit. But what do we do? Do we get discouraged? We debrief what we could have done better, if anything, and we move on to the next mission. And I think that's really critical. Some people just don't have that. It doesn't mean that they couldn't have it, but they just don't have it right now. And they won't be successful at our craft. You prepare, perform as best you can. And you understand that you're, it's a human performance art. And there is a what we call a non-cooperative counterparty. So they can always choose in a way that you, that you wish they wouldn't. And that's just, that's part of the game. So I, I think to build on what you said, prepare, prepare for the pressure beforehand so that when you're experiencing the real life situation, it probably will never be as tough as the preparation. And then, yeah, we yeah. then when you're in front of your prospect or your counterparty, make sure that you are paying genuine attention. I, I have a belief that attention is a currency. You pay attention. Your job is to invest and cre create credit in that emotional bank account and make sure that you're listening to what's being said as much as what's not being said. So, Alan, let me bring you in on this. It really seems to be very key that prospects and counterparts never argue with their own data. How do we make sure we stay out of their way from their decision to buy from us or to give us what we want? The way I would recommend people do it is to stay, stay out of their way is just uh, let them play it out. There is something in, in their world and we need to access the world. And a lot of salespeople and negotiators get lost in the swamp of problems. So I don't know where the Sandler's does this, but how I was trained is we look for the pain, right? Recently, one of my students, one of our students, I say our students, Dan and mine, is he was able to move his efforts forward in a negotiation by dealing and navigating through the pain and the problem clearly. He sells houses. A person comes to them looking for a house in their world is they need a home. But the problem standing in the way was they didn't have the money. They didn't come to him look, looking for money. They came to him looking for a house. But then they found out they wouldn't have enough money, and that became the problem. So a lot of time people get lost in that. And so what he did was he was able to help them work out the, the numbers to realize that they actually need less than half of what they actually thought they needed. And now that with that problem out of that way, they can now see the potential of resolving a pain, the desire to be in a home. In negotiation, how, how we do that, how do we stay out of the way out of the world of unnecessary, or what I call peripheral problems, and data, numbers, money, those are peripheral problems. There's a pain that I want to access. If people can see the pain clearly, they may even move budgets from another line item 
in order to buy your product and services because now they see clearly a path to how they can resolve that deep pain. That makes sense? But a Absolutely. lot of salespeople who are not experienced will come back and go, they got no money. It's never about the money in a real selling situation. And we teach the rule that pain, pain, pain equals dollar, dollar, dollar. If you don't identify the real reason that someone will buy, and it's almost never the problem they bring you. The problem they bring you is never the real problem. And to get to the real problem, you have to, what we call, reverse them three or more times because the first two responses will invariably be intellectual. At the third or more, and that's why it's the rule of three plus, sometimes you have to go five, seven, 21 layers deep, then you will eventually find an emotional response and an emotional connection. And if we look at the reasons why people don't buy, people don't buy because they are not emotionally connected to the outcome. They are not dealing with the right person. They don't believe the evidence or the salesperson. And they find that the salesperson has said or done something that's given them unease. And mm -hmm. what we see time and time and time again is that the salesperson is the reason the prospect objects. Do you find the same thing in the negotiation, Alan? Absolutely. We can be the biggest obstacle. But we let people talk themselves into the direction they actually, we let them have it our way, right? So if we talk too much, the other side is going to sense, they're going to send, they're going to smell it. I almost call it, you, you call it intuition or your feeling. You've seen salespeople try to talk you into something and you, you just sense it, you just feel it. So we so just Dan, get out of our way. Dan, can you convince anyone to do anything ever? The way you formulated it, I would say no. And the reason why is people resist that. Everybody's buying, but nobody wants to be sold. Absolutely. And the more we talk, the more our counterparty believes we're selling them. And we, we put up natural defenses to that. And this is the, like, the classic, like the stereotype of a salesperson, right? Is the car lot, right? You walk onto the, the auto lot and, and here comes the salesperson. And they're going to tell you all about all the features of every car, you know. We know better. But it happens all the time. I was yesterday, I was with somebody and they were describing a third party, like, yeah, he's in sales. He's, he's a great talker. When we're hiring new uh, police crisis negotiators, we have people come in and they're like, hey, I want to be a negotiator. We're like, well, why do you think you can be a great negotiator? Like, well, I can talk anybody into anything. And we're like, yeah, just get out of here. Because listening is where it's at. Listening is how we can be ourselves and be authentic to present the least objectionable, not only like persona, right? but also the least, least objectionable persuasive appeal because we're, using, we're going to use their language and their themes. You know, we're going to discover with them why they might buy our product and service. And then there's your proposition. And then the proposition is everything. When you actually send the proposal, it's going to be accepted because we, we wrote it together. Agreed. Prospects never argue with their own data. For those of you and who it's are never, I want to repeat what you said. It's never about pennies and pounds. It's about priorities. And the, our prospects, and people, our counterparties, they prioritize in an emotional process. We are emotional beings. We are emotional beings. They never argue with their own data. They buy for their reasons, not ours. Dan, you made the point earlier. The minute you try and put any pressure on them to make the decision, they will dig in their heels and they will resist. You need to coach them through that process. And I have never once listened 
or questioned my way out of the sale. I have talked my way out of many. I've let yes. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So check this out. Here's the interesting thing is you can put pressure on people and you can use leverage in a sense and it can work beautifully. Fight that. You can preserve the relationship as long as you're using their internal pressures, as long as you're simply highlighting and enhancing and pointing out the pressures they've revealed to you. And police hostage negotiators know, people think, I think that there's this glide path, like everybody's angry and they're very violent at the beginning. And then we build trust, we build trust, we build trust, we build trust, and then they just come out. No, 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 no. It is a, an emotional roller coaster. And we know at the end, we have to put pressure on them because that trust actually makes them feel comfortable and confident staying in the barricade and talking to this new friend that they have in the primary negotiator. And they'll, do, they'll stay there, all, they'll, they'll get ordering crumpets and tea. And so at the end, the primary puts enormous pressure on them to surrender, but using their language and the themes for surrender that they have revealed or discovered with the negotiator. You can't be like, we're going to gas you out. You're, instead, you say, well, you told me that your grandmother is really important to you and that grandma would hate that you're in here. So why do you continue to stay in here when you're dishonoring grandma? I'm confused. That's enormous pressure, but it's internal. It's something that they have created as a pressure for themselves. And there's a big difference in those two methods. You touched on something which is very near and dear to my heart, which is that a proposal is not a sales document, merely a confirmation of the agreement you have reached mutually. It's <laughs> their data. And at best, you are a scribe. The minute you become an author, you become a creative, a creative writer, that's pretty much it. You should have a 100% conversion rate on proposals. And it's a huge mistake for people to think that proposals are a sales document. Well, I agree with your, your proposal. It's like uh, by the time I have something in writing, it is just a, a written reiteration of what we already verbally agreed on. But a lot of people use the proposal as the first document to kind of surprise and shock them into buying. It never happens. Back to uh, talking ourselves out, what I picture is, picture this. Someone going to interview for a job. And I've sat with my clients interviewing for key positions. And I have seen so many people talk their way out of a job. The thing is, Marcus, when we call them in, guess what? They're already in. The reason we call them in is based on their resume and their experience and then their profiles on LinkedIn or whatever. They could do the job. But then in one hour, they've talked themselves out of the job. Usually mm -hmm. this, they interrupted my client. One of the female interviewers would talk to him. And instead of responding to her, they respond to me or my client thinking we have more authority. But what has happened is he has displayed disrespect to the female interviewer. You see, it goes back to respect. We talk away out of a deal. He had the deal. That's why we called him in. It is a deal for them to lose. And that's why I just want to kind of confirm that a lot of times we talk ourselves out of a sale. I've interviewed a number of very senior salespeople, CEOs, CROs, and one theme seems to come through consistently is that what they really want from salespeople is that they are great diagnosticians. They can get to the root cause of someone else's pain and do so empathically and do so accurately, even when they don't realize that they have that problem. Because more often than not, the way prospects bring us the problem 
is they bring it in one of two forms. They either bring a bunch of symptoms or they bring nirvana. They don't bring the cause. And most of the people that we're dealing with, in my experience, are stuck somewhere on one extreme or the other. When they bring in a salesperson, when they've got someone in for an interview, they don't really understand why. And one of the things that I was taught very early on as a young whippersnapper salesperson is that you shouldn't ever ask why questions because they're abrasive and they create tension. But my experience is that why questions are far and away the most powerful questions. And what they do is because they create that tension, they create movement. So Dan, your thoughts? I love why questions. I just don't use the word why. I just ask how come. I think it's actually the word why that probably imputes the most emotion into the question. So if you simply say, like a classic why question, uh, why are you interested in this at all? How come you're looking at this kind of a solution? Another why question, why are you looking at us? Say, hey, how come we're involved in this process already? We're very happy to be here. What caused you to select us? You can also use what? I just don't think it's quite as effective. I just like to just chop why out and put in how come and use a really great tone of voice and people just really respond to that. You are right. You've got to create tension to move things forward. Just like a car, like the reason why rubber tires move a car forward is because of friction. You don't have to use words that cause them to feel like you're questioning their internal motives. You can just create the friction through that inter the, the intellectual curiosity and the the way that that question really makes them think. So and, this uh, is a stylistic. They are selling themselves on you to you, and it's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to set up in a negotiation or a sale. Alan, so this is a stylistic difference that I have with Dan. I know the translation of the why to the what and how, but I like using why more often than Dan would like to. He also loves butts, just so you know. It's an intro, you, know, like, you know how people say and and but. And, uh, well, the thing is, there's a time to build rapport. And when you're building rapport, you want to use more of the how and the what. But for me, I feel like uh, sometimes breaking rapport is when I use the why. Is when I am read, like I want to create that friction. I create that friction. It's, it's, to me, it seems more powerful when I use the why. But it's with an intent, right? So let's say you and I, that uh, Marcus, we've been talking for, for months and you wanted to hire me to work with your company and to coach your team. And there's a lot of him, like very back and forth. You're very interested. And then you go dark a little bit. We engage. And then you're like, very soon, I'm going to go. You seem really interested in us working together. I know you're considering other people uh, for this training. Why, why, why are you still talking to me? Like, you're going to sense I'm almost done and I'm breaking rapport, but I'm not walking away. Almost every single time I hear why and we're ready to move forward. And it'll go like this because you're local. And my next thing is, Wendy, would you like to start? And the calendar comes up because they have told me why. They have told me why they want to work with me. It's an answer. It's, it's the answer. But prior to that, they're still comparing data. They're like, should I use an out of town source, an expert in this field that I'm in, or Alan as a negotiation coach? And then it's like, I have to help them make a decision. Dude, make a decision. Why am I still in the picture? Why are you still talking to me? Why not just get me off the picture? Why are we still in conversation? And they will say, they will think. You see them, they go, because you're local. It's almost like a light bulb goes up. They're like, 
yeah, I want to talk to you because you're local. Because they are better or I'm better or I'm more expensive or less expensive. They're like... Negative reverse selling, uh, a technique called stripping line where you go more negative than the prospect. All of these are fantastic in terms of creating the dynamic to move a prospect off static. Um, I I always teach Newton's three laws of motion right up at the beginning. The first law of motion is a body at rest stays at rest unless acted upon by an external force. The external force is us, and the static item is the prospect who's at neutral. Body at rest stays at rest, the body in motion stays in motion. So the next thing is you have to keep them moving one way or the other. It doesn't matter which, whether they go positive or negative. And then Newton's third law of motion kicks in. And that's for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And the problem is that most salespeople are first of all taught sell features and benefits because people need to know what it is that you're selling. And they need the evidence and they need to be educated, all of which is total shit. The next next thing is that you're told to be positive. I think the worst thing that ever happened to selling and salespeople was the positive mental attitude movement because it beguiled people into thinking that you have to be something like Tigger, bounce, 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 and all this enthusiasm, complete hogwash. Next thing. The moment you try and convince somebody, their instinctive reaction, particularly when you are a salesperson or you are the negotiator for the other side, is to swing the other way. So the rule is, if everyone else is doing it, do the opposite. Always be negative. Never close. Never handle objections. Never sell using features and benefits. And never present to sell. That means all the onus is back on the prospect or the counterparty to do all the work. The syntax of selling is identical to the seduction process. If, if you look at these pickup artists, they have a syntax, and it's attract, make comfortable, seduce, push away, surrender. And the beauty is that when you operate like that, what that does is it mirrors the brain's decision-making process. Why is so much effort put into trying to forestall a 300 million year hardwired program. Isn't it just crazy? It is crazy. It's because we've forgotten who we are though. We're simply the, the meat popsicle that carries our phones around. But we're emotional social storytellers. And if you haven't built that into your sales and negotiation process, you're not meeting people evolutionary where they are. And, and so you'll get all this confusion going. And then, you know, a confused mind says what? It says, no, go away. So the best negotiators and the best sales folks that I've ever been sold by or negotiated with have encouraged me to tell my story. And when I've asked for features or attributes or benefits, they're ready to describe it, but they're careful to ask questions about what I want to know. And in the end, they're not, they're very persistent in, in finding out whether I want to do business or not. And it's in a way that's very persuasive. You have to recognize that we make decisions emotionally, but we want to feel like they're rational. And so if you we justify either part of that, you're going to be in trouble. You'll get ghosted and people will put you off and and give you all the objections. And really, it's it's not necessarily that they're bad clients. It's that you've forgotten one part of that equation, probably. Well, there are no bad uh, prospects. There are only bad right. salespeople. I suspect there are no bad counterparties, only bad negotiators. Yeah. 
Alan, one of the lessons that I've learned along the way uh, through years of scar tissue and basically fucking up on a regular basis is that, scars, scars <laughs> um, is that the best salespeople I know are intelligently lazy. Carl von Clausewitz, who wrote the book On War, which is the, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Bible for anyone from Sandhurst, West Point, would hire Prussian officers on the basis that they were intelligently lazy. Minimum effort and minimum loss of life. Um, and I think negotiators and salespeople should be hired for the same reasons. So when you're looking to recruit negotiators on behalf of your clients, what are the habits and the qualities that you look for? The ones that we're looking for, which I, I wrote in one of my eBooks, is called N Factor, or to help people identify who may be a good negotiator for a good organization. I think there's a lot of positive attributes. But if I were to pick one, Marcus, if I were to pick one, it would be curiosity. Why do you pick that one? Curiosity is a mindset. And uh, not to bash Dan, Dan is sitting right here. So, But listening is, is key and is easily the second skill or attribute that I'll be looking for but listening as a tactic is not as effective as someone who is curious naturally. They will ask, they will ask good questions. And let me bring you in on this. Oh, Alan just isn't a good listener yet, but that's okay. We're really working on him. There's hope for him yet. <laughs> uh, the number one attribute I look for when I hire negotiators for the police department is humility. Because we will place them in a position where they are not in control, but they do, or they are, I should say this, they're in control of the process, but they're not in charge of the outcome. And so that takes a great deal of humility to uh, be able to work the process the way that we've taught and to trust the team and work through the process and not try to take control of the, our prospect, you might say, the suspect or the subject. And it takes humility to be coached well. It takes humility to let go of old habits and trust the new habits that the team's going to give them or that I might give them as the senior negotiator. I'm looking for somebody that's coachable and eager and hungry and just wants to learn, but doesn't have to be in control of everything. And that's, it's a delicate balance. Would you say curiosity and humility kind of go hand in hand? I would say curiosity, humility, and excellent listening all flow out of the same place work the listening right into it <laughs> well can you take if someone is a good listener by definition they must be curious because i don't think you can you can hear without curiosity but you cannot listen without curiosity and i think you're both uh, on the money here um have you come across the Winner's Triangle, the, developed by A.C. Choi. No. Right. Tell me about it. Well, the Drama Triangle, developed by Stephen Cartman, describes every broken, fucked up, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have oh, okay. on three points. And it's the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And ego thrives on drama. And it describes every dysfunctional relationship you'll ever uh, get yourself into. But the more interesting version of that is the opposite. And... I always quote Bruce Lee on this. He was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else, which is a fabulous bit of advice. You don't have to be that far apart. An inch to the left will be enough. Now, the winner's triangle 
instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. And this is where humility comes in. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. So you plant your feet, you develop a spine, and you learn how to set boundaries, and you learn how to assert yourself instead of being aggressive. And instead of being a rescuer, now a rescuer is someone who helps without boundaries or permission, who is mollycoddling or permissive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. Now, listening is a tough skill because it requires you to subsume your ego. It requires you to be really curious, not only about what's being said, but what's not being said, how it's not being said, and being fully aware. And I firmly believe listening is a full body skill. It's not something that you do with your ears alone. It's something you do with your gut, your heart, your eyes. You're listening for tone, for the silences, for the pauses, uh, for the emphasis, the language that people use. And to do that, you have to be innately curious. You cannot do that just by listening for the words. All the words are, um, are the bones. It doesn't put the flesh, the muscle, the skin on there. So as we take this conversation further, I'd really like to explore the whole process of decision-making. What do you teach and coach your clients to do, Alan, around understanding the other person's process for making a decision so you can interlock with it so you don't end up facing resistance? Well, decisions are always driven by their vision of pain, like what's driving that? So the only way we can access that is by asking great questions to get into their world. And what we call is interrogatives or discovery questions. I've seen the progression of sales last 20, 30 years. They used to, they used to make a lot of statements. And then somewhere in the early 20s, uh, early 2000s, they're like, no, sales is about asking questions. And you see it on LinkedIn. People are like, the one who asks the most questions wins. And I'm like, oh my God, this, this is not an interrogation. This is not the, the inquisition, right? So ask a few powerful questions. And what's the purpose of the questions? There's two purposes. One is, what do I need to learn and discover? The second one is, what, what event do I want to create in their, in their world, in their mind? How can I turn on the discovery channel for them? So the questions can do two parts, help me discover and to create discovery. Once discovery is done well, the other side would gain a certain insight based on your discovery. There's an insight that happens and there's an aha moment. They go, did not realize that. Wow. From there, they have to make a decision or a judgment whether I want to, well, you have shown me something great, Marcus. I did not know I needed your service, but now I have to make a decision. Do I use you or do I use someone else? And once I've made that decision, then I will take action, right? So that's what really people want. They want someone to take action to work with you or work or work with me, right? Let's say I want Marcus to work with me. But people rush to that. They go so quickly to go, will you marry me? But really what they want to do is they want to kind of go, hey, Marcus, tell me about your world. Tell me your story. Tell me what drives you. What's your vision? What, what is... What keeps you up at night? What is your, your aspirations? What are you running away from? Once I have the whole picture, 
and if you and we both of us gain into an insight into what is driving that, then we can move into what's a decision. But that decision is driven emotionally from your own desires. And I think you've just mirrored the seduction process. The first part is that you need to make sure that there is some form of appeal. This is where your marketing, your lead generation, your website, your cold calling, your networking, your content attracts their attention. Then you have to make them comfortable with you, human being to human being, not with their situation, but they need to know that you are not a threat. And a lot of salespeople, because they're selfish and self-orientated, project out that they are a threat. Now, the seduction process, in most salespeople's cases, it goes something like this. So Dan, I'll work with you on this one. Hi, what's your name? Dan. Enough about you. Let's talk about me, my company, my products, my services, and why I think you should spread your legs for me. And the seduction process is not trying to you know, bed somebody on the first touch because 99 times out of 100, you'll get a slap. And the seduction process is the pain discovery, the diagnosis, having them tell their story, listening to them tell their story and feeling understood, feeling felt, feeling heard. Then budget. Budget isn't just about money. It's about all those other aspects. Commitment, resources, access, financials, times, timing, compelling events, uh, will, ability. But most salespeople are lazy in the wrong way. They don't take the time. They're impatient. They're like a 14-year-old behind the bike sheds on a fumble. They're trying to put their hand up the skirt before somebody is actually ready to even commit because they haven't created that comfort and they haven't earned the right to be respected. So, Dan, tell me this. What advice would you give to people who are at the beginning stage of a relationship with a new customer in order to ensure that they create the right conditions so that there is that understanding, that mutual trust, and they they don't blow it in their rush to try and make the order happen? One thing that we do in, in crisis negotiated world that I've learned that's very powerful for business is to continue to do discovery and continue to try to understand the pain, as Alan would say, until they signal to you clearly that they're ready for you to propose a solution. And that is the difference between selling through brute force and overcoming objections with a battering ram and the image of the knight's piece in chess, which is the symbol of a negotiator, which we jump over those objections. We don't use force. We use strategy and consent. So the difference between me saying, Marcus, you should buy this for all these reasons, and me waiting for you to say, Dan, what have you got for me? And I said, you know what? I'm glad you asked. I do have something I think would work based on what you're telling me. And then presenting that option, but asking more questions, I think, gosh, that's, I would ask if people wanted advice, I'd be like, well, how, how many, how are you deciding what questions to ask? And how many questions are you asking before you pitch? You're right. The, the level of all over LinkedIn, you got to be empathetic. You got to build rapport. You got to build trust. You got to make it all about them. And yeah, the, what I see in the field is a salesperson <laughs> comes in and says, hey, what's your name? You know, how's your day going? Are you surviving coronavirus? Has your house been burned down? No? Great. Okay. Let me tell you why I'm here. Or the really sophisticated ones will look around and be like, oh, golf clubs. You like to golf? Yeah, man, me too. I'm a scratch golfer. Where do you like to golf? They're great. Cool. Let's get to this now. Enough pleasantries. Here is why you're going to buy from me. 
you know, and it's just a stark contrast. I'm like, where's the romance? Where's the chivalry? So, right? uh, absolutely. And again, it is about seduction. You know, it's so- a process. It's a process. If you don't respect the process and you try to shortcut it, and we all want hacks, but you, like you said, you have to respect what people are and then respect who they are. And what they are is social, emotional storytellers. We've evolved to where we are. And if you don't respect that, then you'll be mostly frustrated in your career. I thought, I thought the world was only 6,000 years old and the dinosaurs didn't exist. I don't know what podcast you listen to. <laughs> the Flat Earthers. <laughs> Insulting Pentecostals aside. so It's okay, I'm Roman Catholic, so we're still good as far as evolution goes. <laughs> so something that's really important to understand and I want to build on Alan's point, is weak salespeople ask questions to gather housekeeping information. Actually, most of which they could have probably looked up on the internet. And if they're asking questions of the prospect, particularly in a a sophisticated buyer, where they know that you could have found that information out, you're going to have about two minutes before you end up with a boot print on your backside. The more advanced salespeople, and again, I still pretty low opinion of these, will ask questions to gain understanding. But to build on Alan's point, the questions that the real pros ask deliver insight. And all of this stuff can be prepared for. And when was the last time you heard an original objection where a prospect or a counterparty was facing a problem that was utterly original that you could not prepare for? Well, maybe one in a thousand times you come across something that is totally unique. But I've had one original objection in 35 years of selling. And that was from a Sikh person who said to a a salesperson who was completely culturally unaware that a bartering was against his religion. And the guy fell for it. But it wasn't a real objection. It was a way of kicking the salesperson out. When was the last time you found an Indian trader who wasn't willing to barter? Yeah, it's just crazy. So all of this can be prepared for. So why is lack of discipline, lack of preparation so common? And people rush. In fact, I'm going to give you one hack, okay? For those of you who are listening, slow down to speed up. Slow right down, take your time, be patient, and then the sale will accelerate. How can negotiators who are under pressure for time speed up the process to the point. In fact, even better question, first of all, should a seller or a negotiator ever try to speed the process up when prospect or a counterparty is clearly working towards a timetable? When, uh, so what, what I'm hearing is, should a salesperson rushed the process when the counterpart is working to us a timetable. Yeah. So what, uh, what we would do is we want to verify the timetable. We want to validate the timetable because sometimes it's real. Sometimes it's real. Most times it's not. Imagine, so picture this. I have a client and they, they make stuff for innovators and they have trade shows. Trade shows October 15th, for instance, right? So you need to get that prototype by October 15th so they can take it to the trade show in order to start taking orders from their prospects. They're sometimes they're real timetables. A lot of times the timetable is just an arbitrary date that they said they would like to close a deal or get it done with. So number one is you want to buy time. Should a salesperson do that? I'm going to use what you said earlier. 
to slow down, to move fast. And it's actually, a, it's a saying in, in martial arts, to move fast, move slow, to move even faster, don't move. <laughs> what that means is... Unfortunately, we say smooth is fast and don't outrun your headlights. The thing is, in negotiation, if you want to move fast and you want to close your deals quicker, don't close the deal. But it doesn't mean do nothing. It means you want to do all your meetings has to be purposeful. So you have to prepare. And sometimes not saying anything, silence is the best tactically. But in a, in a strategic situation, sometimes breaking rapport may be the best. But you need to know, you cannot use it like a technique thing. That's why I don't teach techniques, right? And there's a lot of books written out there and, and it, it gets my goat a little bit. And I know it, it upsets Dan a little bit. It's things, books like, you know, this is a negotiation hack. You know, a book, the 10 hacks that you need or the one question you got to ask to close all your deals. And I'm like, I've been doing this for like almost like 13, 15 years. I don't know that there's one thing you can do that would just automatically close all your deals or get everything done or resolve all your conflicts. This is where we agree. But to answer your question, to, to, to move fast, move slow, we don't close. Because if you do discovery well, if you help the other party see that you are a great option or the best option to resolving their pain, they will ask you, when do we start? What's the next step? When do we sign? Where do we sign? They will signal to you they want to move forward. But it doesn't mean we're not going to make it available. I'm just not going to close the deal. They will close the deal. I agree. And I think the other challenge here is very often negotiators and salespeople are coming to the negotiating table from a position of scarcity. And if you had a full pipeline and you have enough prospects, you wouldn't be tempted to start making unilateral, unnecessary, premature discounts or concessions. So do your job properly. Focus on the right end of the problem. The reason people discount is because they are broke and they've only got one or two deals in the pipeline. They're needy. Absolutely. And no one wants to buy from a needy, desperate, broke seller. Smell it on somebody. It's like the stink of death. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Excellent. Okay. So let's wrap up on this. What are you guys struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? We're beating people away with sticks. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people that are recognizing that they need to boost their negotiations and listening skills within negotiations or sales. And so we're, we're seeing a lot of interest in that. We're struggling to keep up with all the people that are very interested in high-quality coaching. Raise your prices. Uh, actually- yeah. We are, like Dan and I do group coaching together. And uh, the free Q&A is for people to have a chance to, for those who are interested in negotiation, to come to a place where they can kind of see what negotiation really is and whether they're interested in working and uh, developing the skills with Dan and, and me together. Because there's other people out there that are sharing information that we consider even dangerous, if not erroneous. And that will actually kill the deals. So what we have been doing is uh, uh, I, being a little selective in, in what we bring into a coaching group. And sometimes we invite people, and if it's, that, it's not a good fit, that's okay. We don't pursue it. 
But the ones who are really interested, they're very engaged. And Dan and I are almost coaching 24 hours a day. You think it's impossible, but they, they, the questions are so engaging. The challenges are, are so real. And uh, they're solving problems on the fly, like in re- almost like real time. I have a deal right now, Dan and Alan. This is what I have. This is my problem. This is a desired outcome. This is my next step. Take a look. What do I do? This is how they responded. And we can actually coach them through real deals, not theoretical skills they can learn. And hopefully someday they can use. It is really, what's your problem right now? Let me help you with that. This is like live coaching almost. Supported negotiations, you might say, consulting. I think the other thing we're struggling with is just getting more people to come to the negotiation tribe. And it's just a free community. And it's it's really important to learn in a community. It's really important to have coaching and peer support and, and rubbing your edges on other people, sharpening, you know, iron sharpeners iron right out of, out of scripture, you know. I think that's really important, not just for sales and negotiation, like certainly for profit. But, you know, civically, like we need to be able to negotiate better as a society because we can't rely upon our leaders to really lead well anymore. <laughs> it's really going to be granular. Like you need to get along with your neighbors and your pastor and the local policeman, you know, the local constable. Like you need to be able to negotiate with all these people in your lives because if you do that, it spreads out from these good relationships that are built upon something instead of built upon authority and force and violence. So... We also, you know, I won't say we're philanthropists, but we just think that negotiation is really an important core skill for people to teach their kids. So why not learn that yourself in a community of fellow learners from all different, certainly diverse from an industry perspective and a role perspective, but honestly, the diversity is global. I think we have like 22 countries represented in the tribe right now. So it's very interesting. So not doing too badly then. We're not doing great. I mean, we're 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 train wrecks. Look at us, Marcus. Well, Marcus. One of the ways to look at negotiation is how do we how do we have difficult conversations when the stakes are high? When the stakes are low, let's say I'm a billionaire and you want to sell me a Honda Civic for two million dollars. I'm like, okay, yeah, two million dollars, sure, take it. I don't even want to haggle, right? It's because we want to conserve our, our resources or, or, or the stakes are high and I don't have the money and, and it's not the right time, but I need your services. That's when we need, we need to negotiate, when there's a conflict. So coming to learn how to negotiate is not just about sales. It's about how do we improve our personal and our personal lives. You know, how a husband and wife, yesterday someone came to my workshop and he's a counselor. Question was, how can I help this couple reconcile? I'm not a counselor. But there's a framework and there's a way, how do we create safety, the, the sense, the feeling of safety? How, how do we negotiate? How we negotiate? How do we negotiate our, like a house rules? How are we going to talk? How, what, when things go south, what are we going to do? All those are little micro negotiations. And once you realize that, based on what you said earlier, decision, right? It's one decision after the next. How can we help people make good decisions? for their personal lives, for their professional lives. And, and Dan and I feel like the, the negotiation tribe is a great place for people to have that kind of conversation. I think you've touched on something that's really important, it, whether it's selling or negotiating, is one of the most important skills is the ability to uh, create sm- lots of small verbal contracts and create 
little agreement after little agreement after little agreement. So by the time you come to the end, then there's no big decision. And it's a, it's a very underused skill and something I'm always going to be grateful for from my time with Sandlet. Learning how to upfront contract, contract all the way through. ABC doesn't mean always be closing. It means always be contracting. And then at the end, create another contract for what happens next and how to escalate in the event that it doesn't happen. I think a lot of salespeople, when they get to the end of the sales process or they get to the end of the negotiation, invariably leave gaps. And if you leave any stone unturned at that point, then the other side will drive a coaching horses through it. And that's on the seller or the negotiator. Um, You remind me of a movie called Mars by Matt Damon. Ah. You know what he said? If I solve one problem, one little problem at a time, and I solve enough of those problems, I get to go home. Yeah. Oh, the Martian. Yeah, I get it. Yes. Martian, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so guys, how can people get hold of you? Well, the best way to reach Dan and I is just on LinkedIn. You can connect with us there and let us know that you're interested in joining the negotiation tribe and we'll hook you up. Excellent. And I see Dan's website is masterlistener.com and yours is 88owls.com. That's correct. Excellent. So one final question then before we go. What is inspiring you, influencing you at the moment in terms of great content, either that you're watching, reading, or listening to? Dan? For me, it's the small group coaching we're doing. Because as you know, the teacher always learns more than the student if they're (laughs) good at their craft. So these the current groups we're working with are really, really inspiring me with their disclosing to us what they're really struggling with and then watching them succeed in the process with the support of the group and then the support of Alan and I. It's been very, very uh, cool to watch. Absolutely. I always learn more. When I first started this business, I decided that my business model was go out and find people who are screwed up just like me and then get paid to fix us both. It's, it's very there. lucrative and you'll never run out of work. <laughs> Excellent. Alan, can you suggest any books or audios, podcasts that that you'd recommend? The last few weeks right now is just um, very much uh, aligned with Dan. I'm learning so much from a small group. And in fact, I'm learning a lot from Dan, just uh, as we do this (laughs) team coaching. I'm able to almost use Dan as a little bit of a mirror for myself. (laughs) So that's uh, he's kind of an inspiration. It pains me to say it. It pains me to say it. Excellent, guys. Thank you so much. So thank you, Alan Sang. Thank you, Dan Oblinger. I got it right. You nailed it. Right. Don't negotiate with my brother. (laughs) Don't negotiate with my brother. Thanks, Marcus. You've been fantastic. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, either to talk about some of the topics that we've discussed or for a confidential one-to-one conversation about your business, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who'd be a good guest for the Inquisitor podcast, then email me too. So happy selling, happy negotiating. Take care. Go and take some money. Bye-bye.